It's Wednesday, January 8th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night, President Joe Biden laid out the continuing stakes for the war in Ukraine and what Vladimir Putin's aggression means not just to that country of 30 million, but to this country of 330 million. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages, a test for America, a test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles? Would we stand for sovereignty? We stand for the right of people to live free of tyranny? Will we stand for the defense of democracy? I'm here to let you know the results of the Biden self-assessment. It was glowing. Check, 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 check. And we are checking Putin's aggression. The U.S. might well be a nation in decline, as critics say, as some people who love America assert. But when you think about it, we're the kind of declining nation that can effectively rescue another nation from worse than decline, from destruction. And Biden should be making this point and should not worry about the charge that he's resorting to some sort of blatant patriotism or resorting to American exceptionalism, because this is the sort of issue that Americans should feel patriotic about, should regard their nation as a bit exceptional. But he's also resorting to content that was less grandiose. We're going to ban surprise resort fees that hotels charge on your bill. Those fees can cost you up to $90 a night at hotels that aren't even resorts. And even if they are resorts, Alaskan King Crab is not included in the all-you-can-eat buffet. There's an upcharge for top-shelf liquor. No, I'm serious. This is part of the State of the Union where I, as a media elite, am supposed to swallow my concern and say, you know, mock all you want what Joe Biden is saying, but damn it, these are the real concerns of real people, and $90 is a lot. Well, sure, it is a lot. I just don't know if it's of the rest of the lot of things he was talking about, but I guess right now, Courtyard by Marriott, Tallahassee, you're on notice. Also, Vladimir Putin, on notice. The contrast of the profound and the prosaic would be as if Ronald Reagan followed up this statement. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall with this. You're not gonna pay a lot at Meineke. And damn it, history will remember him for successes on both fronts. On the show today, I continue spieling about the State of the Union and basically what the GOP hissy fit tells us, not about the sissies throwing the fits, but about the ecosystem that incentivizes and rewards such bellowing. But first, it is an exciting time here on The Gist. We have many initiatives underway to buttress the finances of Peachfish Productions to ensure that we are a healthy enterprise going forward. You may know that it is terrible times across the podcast landscape. Layoffs are everywhere. That is not a position that Peachfish is in, thankfully, but we do have to do more. And I'm asking you to come along and giving you something to come along because the advertising market is hollowing out. So in a week... There will be a terribly exciting major announcement. But today, there is a terribly exciting minor announcement. My substack called Pesca Profundities. 
hereby transitions away from its original form, which was a letter exchange with a once and perhaps future friend of mine, into what the name promises, a more in-depth distillation of my thoughts, but in written form. I don't know how much of an incentive that is, but I would say you'll get charts, you'll get bullet points, you'll get me talking about things I don't talk about with my flapping gums. That's good. Not all content is best addressed in the verbal form. This new substack shall be suitable for sharing and for framing. And it's all free. It will all be free. All the content is free for a while. Nothing will be behind a paywall for a while. Subscribe for free if you will. And soon we will start offering extra and extra subscriber benefits. But I just wanted to notify everybody about that. And I also wanted to tease the major announcement coming soon that I talked about. And I also didn't want to do this over the last couple of days because, as you may have heard in the credits, I've been fundraising for the Denushkina family. They fled Ukraine as the shelling began on their apartment in Odessa. They're here. My family's housing them. I'm going to, I think tomorrow, maybe Friday, tell you more about how I tap State Department resources and insight. But for now, there's a GoFundMe that Michelle and I have started. It's uh, linked in these show notes. It's on MikePesca.com. I didn't want to talk about Substack or the special announcement because I didn't want to get in the way of what I was doing, trying to do, what we're all trying to do for Svetlana, Sergei, Yasha, Dima. These people have great potential, great resilience, but they also have great needs. I know what you're saying. Svetlana and Sergei, you were like, Mike is making this up. He couldn't think of better Ukrainian names. No, that is really them. And I do ask you to donate if you can. And I do ask you to check out the Pesca Profundities substack if you can. And certainly keep listening to the gist. I have given you so many assignments. So right now, I am giving you another. It's that we're joined again, a a, a happy assignment, depending on your predilections for this sort of guest. We're joined again by the siren of Long Island. He went from Trump handmaiden to hand grenade. You love Turner and Hooch. I give you part two of Pesca and the Mooch. Anthony Scaramucci up next. Anthony Scaramucci served 11 days in the Trump White House and has been highly critical of that man ever since, often in the kind of barbed personal tones that the former president can't help but, shall we say, engage with. In this part of the interview, I began by asking Scaramucci about a particular revelation of the January 6th committee. One of the consequences, one of the outcomes of the January 6th committee, and that, by the way, I know is your birthday, was that we heard about the institution of Team Crazy and Team Normal. And these were the two teams, I think it was Eric Hirschman, the lawyer, but, or maybe someone else articulated it. And within, the, within the administration, there were some people at least just doing the work to maybe hold the country together and some who weren't. So I don't know if that idea was in the air when you were there, but here's my question I want you to think about. Do you think, uh, and also let me say on the record that within that milieu, I think that Team Crazy and Team Normal are apt descriptors. And personally, I'm glad that a guy like General Milley took the job and his motivations were great. Okay. But do you think to any extent the presence of Team Crazy served to convince Team Normal that they were doing a more justifiable thing than they really were? 
yes, I think you're on to something. And I think when we study this era, when the craziness of the era dissipates, it's 25 or 50 years from now, I'll be long gone. You'll probably still be here, but you, you, you'll be observing the era. You say, wow, what happened in the United States? And what happened in the United States is about 20% of the white, middle, and lower class disaffected from the social contract. They walked away from the establishment, political, medical, business establishment, because they are not getting a fair deal anymore. And so now the guy that was once aspirational, working class family, his kid's going to go to Harvard, live the American dream. That guy is now economically desperational, and he thinks his kid is going to have a worse life than him. And so he's mad at the establishment. Okay. And so somebody's going to write that Donald Trump assessed that appropriately, had very good political instincts. He preyed on that at a time when they, uh, they went to elect a very establishment figure, Hillary Clinton, that had disassociated herself from those people. And there's an irony there, Mike, because those people voted for Roosevelt. Those people voted for Lyndon Johnson. Those people voted for the Kennedy brothers. But they were now going to vote for a white Republican politician over the former Democratic Party because the Democratic Party lost its way and started focusing away from them. You see what happened? And so by miracle, he wins, even though he loses the popular vote, he wins because of the way the Electoral College works. And he's now ascending to the presidency. And it's like Father Coughlin or Charles Lindbergh from the America First movement of the 1940s, that nativistic movement, like one of them got to the presidency over Franklin Roosevelt. And he ravaged the country. He did, he did damage to the country. He lit up racial hatreds and anger. Uh, he was a human wrecking ball to our principles. And then he went after the democracy. Okay, so uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, myself, uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway, if they're going to be honest, Mike, they got to look in the mirror and say, yes, I contributed to his rise. And therefore he created more racial invective and more hatred. And I'm sorry about that. I did it. I didn't really understand why I was doing it at the time in the full context that I do today. And I'd like to own up to it and say, I'm sorry about it. But I'd also like to explain to you why so that you never have that happen to you and we never have that happen again where he rises to power again. Now, the real risk, Mike, is he's going to rise to power again because the best thing he's got going for him are the Democrats. This woke nonsense and this strident radical leftism and the vice president of the United States uh, uh, castigating police officers, uh, it doesn't play well with a lot of people. A lot of people are like, you know, I don't like that. And so I'm going to hold my nose and vote for the orange wrecking ball again. If he could get through the Republican primary. And I heard you talking to Maggie Haberman and you both agreed that he's a diminished presence. But I wonder if you think, and we've- So powerful. He's got, he's got these lunatics. One thing about Trump's base, they're his base, man. They're not, I might be his base unless Mike Pompeo joins the race. No, they're locked in with the guy. Do you think that one of one of the aspects of his personality is if you like him and compliment him and flatter him, he'll like and compliment and flatter you back no matter 
who you are or if you machine gunned your uncle. So I'm thinking about QAnon. He has done, because they're now a larger part of his base, he has done very explicit endorsements of them. Will that hurt him, do you think? Yeah, well, he, uh, he's, he's, he's feeding that. He, he will feed anything that helps him, okay? So, so let me explain this to you. Like, he's not a racist, okay? He acts like a racist, but it's not racism. It's worse than racism, okay? It is objectification of human beings. So, so he's, he's know, let me explain. It's very important to understand this so you can beat Trump. If you're a member of the KKK, do you walk up to a black Toyota and kick it? The car's black. You kick the car. There's a white Toyota and a black Toyota. You wear a hood. You're going to walk over and kick the Toyota? No. But Trump objectifies everybody. So if it serves his interest to pardon the black grandmother, he's going to do that. If it serves his interest to bring Kanye West into the Oval Office, he's going to do that. If it serves his interest to say that he doesn't know who David Duke is or he brings the white supremacists to Mar-a-Lago, he's going to do that. He's going to say that there are very fine people on both sides of a Nazi movement in Charlottesville, Virginia. So, so he is the principalist, malevolent actor for his own purient self-interest. Now, maybe everyone's like that now because I watch enough you know, Yellowstone and shit like that. Maybe everyone's like that now. But I don't think we're like that as people. I don't think so. I think that we grew up in a, whether you're an atheist now or not, we grew up in a Judeo-Christian society that has certain cultural and moral values that our grandparents relied on. They came here poor and they got here, they got some help from the community and they got ample opportunity from American capitalism and they rose. Okay, like 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 you were talking about Springsteen and rising. Okay, they rose. We rose, but we're falling now. Not all of us. The rich are getting richer. Trust me, but the people I grew up with, they can't catch a break. They cannot catch a break. They're having problems with the healthcare, education system. The the eggs are going to eight dollars. Then the, the guy, how am I going to do this? The insurance in New York just went skyrocketing, and the auto insurance. So guys making eighty thousand dollars a year, they wanted to pay eight thousand dollars of premiums for his cars. His his wife has a car, he has a car. He's like the car is fifteen years old. How can I pay eight thousand dollars of premiums for the car when I'm making sixty five thousand, eighty thousand dollars a year? And they're hurting and they're pissed, Mike. They're pissed. So we got to fix it because if we don't fix it, it's going to fracture and get worse. Well, I take what you said and. It was premised on the idea that not everyone's like Trump, not everyone operates simply out of self-interest, but I would say the thing that stops him isn't that, it's the opposite. It's that people do operate out of self-interest and then now they've come to regard Trump and everything he's all about is just not operating in their self-interest, adjudicating the last election or talking to QAnon or whatever else it is that uh, is occupying most of his time and most of his campaigning thus far. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, I mean, you know, you are, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people, get interviewed with different people. You are very well read on this stuff and you are uh, very well researched. So I'm going to push it back to you for a second. Okay. I'm going to ask you the question. Okay. Is Trump malevolent? Is he a malevolent actor? Yes or no? Based on your observation and research? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Why then do good men and women, 
Okay, because Bill Maher himself said this to me. Hey, guys, 80 million people voted for him. You mean to tell me 80 million people are racist and bad people? So why do good people, okay, vote for and support Donald Trump? Well, I would say some percent of them can't see it. Some percent of them share his general malevolence. To some degree, it's a two-party system and they're not going to vote for Democrats. And some people just like the aspects, like you, picked and choose the aspects of his agenda or personality that they thought were the most important. And then you could add psychology and motivated self-reasoning into the, that selection. Something like that. Well thought out. There you go. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question, okay? So if you could convince those people that are supporting Donald Trump that there was an aspirational, better idea that reflected better on the country and reflected better on them as people and better on them as Americans, and there was a program and policy in place that over time would lead to success and growth and benefit to their family. Do you think they would move from Donald Trump or do you think they would stay with Donald Trump? Yes, but first, before they could even hear that, people have to know that the person proposing that doesn't hate them, doesn't look down at them. Amen. 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 Yeah, see, that's pretty much see, it. See, and that and by Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna just jump on top of that like we're in the end zone together. David Axelrod said to me, just remember something, okay? People will vote for people that they dislike. They gave Richard Nixon two presidential elections. One of them was a landslide, okay? So they can dislike the person, but they'll vote for him. What they don't like doing is voting for people that dislike them. That's it. Okay, That's that, they don't important. like that. Are, what do you mean? So you're better than me. I'm a deplorable, but you're better than me. Okay, I'm not voting for you, right? So, but I mean, this is something that we talked about with Maggie Haberman on Open Book. This is something that I, I, I brought up with... Uh, sociologists. This is why I interview these different authors, because what I love about authors and the reason why we started this podcast, Barbara, my team, et cetera, is that for, I used to be able to say, Mike, that for $10 and 10 hours, you can get 10 years of experience. But now as a result of inflation for $20 and 10 hours, you can get 10, 10 years of experience because Maggie Haberman is writing a book. I think I have it here somewhere. It's about 50 years of Donald Trump. She researched it for a year. It took me, I don't know, 12 hours to read it. And I picked up all that experience. And now because of the way we live in our society, I put a podcast together where I'm actually reading the book, but I'm interviewing the author. You can go read the book if you want. If you don't want to read the book, you can listen to me talk to the author and you can pick up things that are going on. So I want to ask you a question about SBF. Um, and it's for a reason, and you'll see why. We're going to come back to themes of self-assessment. You did a deal with him, as was reported. You sold a third of your company to him, which basically is to say you lit a third of your company on fire, knowing what we know now. Is that about right? Well, yes and no, because remember, he gave me the money, right? So I sold I sold it for $45 million U.S. dollars. Uh, he asked me to buy $10 million of his token, which I did. I, I took a loss on those tokens. Um, of $9.6 million. So I'm sitting on $35.4 million of cash on my balance sheet. Uh, and the bankruptcy estate now owns 30% of my business. And so I'm negotiating with them to buy that back. So so yes and no, I don't think anything's been set on fire in the sense that uh, he did 
he did hurt my cryptocurrency portfolio because his debacle took Bitcoin from 24,000 to 16,000. It traded back up to 24,000, but that, that, that volatility is damaging. And he certainly hurt my reputation because what we do in our society, unfortunately, when you're a victim of a fraud or somebody that's fraudulent, we blame the victims. We say, how could that person be so stupid to have been involved with that fraud? It's like the girl from Theranos, right? Elizabeth Holmes. There was a list of luminaries that invested with her. They have to all be stupid because they got duped by her. So you have to do a self, it's incumbent on you as a person in the world, but also as an investor and someone who wants to continue to be successful. You have to do a self-assessment, right? What did I do wrong? How did I get swindled? Or what were, what were the circumstances? Was there any mistake I made? And I understand the specifics of SBF. He took a lot of people in, big firms vouched for having done the due diligence and it turned out they didn't. I think there was a house of cards quality with every other firm. Maybe your firm said, oh, Sequoia did the due diligence and Sequoia said someone else did the due diligence and no one did the due diligence. But here it is. Here's the question. Maybe it's going to sound harsh, but have you recalibrated how good you think your bullshit detector is? Just given these two very high profile associations. Well, they're two, they're two very different associations, though. You know, one, one, one was a political association. I think I've explained that. The, bull, the bullshit thing, I'm going to say no. The political thing, I'm going to say yes, okay, because I've retraced myself from politics. I've retracted from it. I'm only giving now to a few people that I'm friends with. I don't want anything to do with politics going forward in any meaningful way. Um, if Trump does run for re-election and he is nominated by the Republicans, I will drop everything that I'm doing, though, and go out every night and talk against him because he is a systemic danger to the American way of life and he's a systemic danger to our democracy and he'll hurt our society if he wins re- re-election. He'll, he'll really damage the society. So we have to do everything we can to stop him. I'm not saying we can do that, but we at least have to try. But 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 that would be my only involvement in politics. This is different. This is business. And when I will say something that probably, again, doesn't reflect well on me is the answer is no. My bullshit detector is not any better. I will tell you that I will be taking risks in the future and I will be making mistakes in the future um, where we miss Sam because the due diligence was done and there was a Bain Capital report and Sequoia and Tomasic do do due diligence where we missed on Sam was he had a backdoor accounting system that his auditors didn't pick up on. So he had presented to us third-party audited finances that were manufactured by this accounting system. So when you were actually looking at his stuff, it looked very pristine and it looked very one-to-one. So if you're telling me that I'm going to be able to catch that next time because my bullshit meter is better, I'm telling you I'm not going to be able to catch that. In retrospect, so he espoused many ideas that are would be called progressive. I know ideologically, you probably didn't agree with him, although you both agreed, at least he publicly talked about the need for regulation in the market. Looking back, how much of these stances do you think were calculated to sort of uh, get in good with the progressive either media or political elites? Well- don't go by me, go by SBF, because SBF, in a moment of extreme honesty, texted with great transparency to a journalist 
that he contrived all of that because he wanted those people to buy into him. Okay. And so what happens in our society, someone like me, who's anti-woke, doesn't believe in all that garbage, is going to get lit up in the press. I could be mother, I could be Mother Teresa and I could be healing people. I'm still going to get lit up in the press. But if I'm a woke person and I'm speaking with the pablums of wokeness, they give you a pass. And you know that, and I know that, and Sam knew that. And so that's what he did. And he was very open about it. So don't go by me, go by himself. He said it to the journalists that that whole thing was contrived. Anthony Scaramucci's new podcast is called Open Book. He's also on the Fox series Special Forces, World's Toughest Test. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Hey, great to be on, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. And now the spiel. The State of the Union was disputatious. Joe Biden got to the part where he talked about opioid addiction, fentanyl, overdoses, and here's what we heard. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. You got it. Someone booing overdoses. Well, yeah, I guess. Deaths of despair by gum. I'm again it. I'm not afraid to say so. But that's actually not what was going on there. What was happening was that a renegade, though not infinitesimal group of radical Republican legislators, were acting as if they were Stadler and Waldorf of the Muppet Show. That was a great number. I don't care what you say. I thought it was dumb. Maybe you're right. (laughs) Or maybe like they were, I don't know, fans of Hawk and Animal, the Road Warriors, in the upper decks at WrestleMania 8. The angry Muppet from the Balcony Act showed up again during the president's discussion of the debt ceiling. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond, folks. And there were the Democrats and some Republicans even to clap to his aid. On the one hand, it's a horrible lack of decorum to boo a president like we heard, to heckle him. On the other hand, the State of the Union has become such a performance with insincere reactions and strategized ovations designed to make a point that you hold it in a separate category, category other than sincerity. So then are we to say that the only points that can be made, the only calculated points can be positive ones? I decry what politics have become and how we're hijacked by the most reckless among our legislators. But a part of me says that if we're to show intellectual consistency, we can't just applaud the insincere applause during the State of the Union and decry the equally calibrated cries of outrage. If I advocate for stock market coverage that doesn't include just bullishness, that reports on short positions, and if I think American politics could use a little less posturing, a little more healthy give and take, like Prime Minister question time, then I probably shouldn't regard heckling of Joe Biden as the death knell of civility. Now, part of me thinks that, but another part, a bigger part, thinks that yelling, it's your fault! as Tennessee Representative Andy Ogles did when Biden brought up fentanyl overdoses, is, in a word, shameful. It's also stupid. 
but why doesn't Andy Ogles think it's so? The immediate explanations are to point at personal deficiencies of Andy Ogles and also Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bob Good. And the next layer is to blame their supporters. Yes, rousing the rabble and the rabble, they each deserve blame, but blame isn't explanation. During some of that heckling, not the big debt ceiling fracas, but the fentanyl bellowing, you couldn't even tell what was going on. I mean, I couldn't. And I also mean you couldn't. Because you and I consume the State of the Union via television, network television, and presumably we follow it by monitoring network television coverage afterwards, or CNN, or even Fox, or reading some real newspapers, and maybe listening to some non-insane radio shows or podcasts. And if that's all the raucous Republicans relied on, they would have never yelled, because no one would be able to tell what the hell they were saying. That's how booing from an audience while a speaker has a microphone, that's how it works. He gets to answer the booers, the catcallers, on his terms and call them out and define them. It's a really desperate move to engage in booing and heckling in that situation. Almost all the time, it makes the yeller look lost and small. But now, media is completely fractured. Now that Marjorie Taylor Greene, with her 1.9 million Twitter followers, and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, with their 2.2 million Twitter followers each, are their own networks and own media ecosystems, they can portray themselves the protagonist of that drama, and their audiences will agree, love it, and donate. We know all this, but it does affect so many of the usual incentives. Without it, we wouldn't have heard what we heard last night. In fact, at this point, I have come to a different answer to the following question. Is the fracturing of the media worth not just, yes, do we have to take the bad with the good? Was it, as a whole, on whole, worth it? I mean, yeah, let's go back. Three networks, if that's the media world, stultifying. Three networks on a 24-hour cable station, then two of them, then three of them maybe a little better, then websites, then everyone as their own website that's achieved scale. That's where we are now. And I think at that point, somewhere after websites, somewhere in the early days of social media, but not where we are now, it tipped. Yeah, it's true. I know that we think gatekeepers bad, little guy good, not Bob good, actually good good, but ask yourself, is the benefit of heretofore ignored voices that you agree with worth the cost of heretofore ignorable voices that you disagree with? I think not. At this point, I say no. Luckily, my verdict can't change anything. I also base this belief on the fact that most of the progress that's happened in the last 20 years against the backdrop of the media as I described it, would have happened even if there was no Arab Spring or the American equivalent, no flourishing of all the voices, no fulfilling and fully flowering of all that Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter offered. I think we would have still made progress on recognizing that climate change is real, reducing the number of prisoners we put to death, reducing the number of prisoners overall. Plus, we'd have had gay marriage and a sea change in how we think about drunk driving and a sea change about how seriously we take sexual abuse. These would happen without the fracturing of the media. But the Tea Party leading to QAnon, leading to Marjorie Taylor Greene calculating correctly that it is in her interest to boo the president, that does not happen if she doesn't have her outlets and if she isn't her own outlet. But like I say, 
We can't rerun the experiment. We could just defeat and rebut her agenda. Never to the satisfaction of reality as she portrays it, but in terms of actual votes in the actual house, which is still actually an actual institution that is powered by something other than attention. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Show notes for the GoFundMe for our Ukrainian family, which Michelle Pesca has spearheaded. She's also the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Um, Peru, G Peru, Du Peru. And thanks for listening. Well, that's talent. An opera singer who tap dances and sings cowboy songs. I wonder if there's anything she isn't good at. Yes, choosing what show to be on. (laughs) 